So on this journey of On the Shoulders of Giants, tonight I'm going to be talking about a woman named Mary Slessor. And over the course of the last few weeks, I've told people who I'm speaking on, and only one person has said, oh, I know who she is. I read a book about her. So it's totally fine if you've never heard of her, but I want to share with you first why I've chosen to speak with her. And I do have a slide Last week, Colin showed a picture of Kate Shepard on the New Zealand 10-pound note, and this is Mary Slessor on the 10-pound note in Scotland. When I was um, in university, I studied her, and I was absolutely blown away by her life, by her ministry, and by her character, and, and shocked a little bit. Like, I, I felt like, who is this crazy lady? And I kind of want to be like her. And so she, over the years, she's always been kind of a hero in the back of my mind. And um, when I had the opportunity to talk about her, I thought, I'm going to research her again to see if she's actually the hero that I thought she was. Because sometimes you do that. There's, you have this image of someone in your mind. Oh, they're so fabulous. But then when you go back and look at your life, like, kind of shady, maybe not such a good hero. She proved me wrong. So I want to back up a little bit before her lifetime and talk about slavery. So these are the slave routes from, um, from Africa into basically the rest of the world. There's you know going into South America, North America, the West Indies. Um, you, maybe you see right there it says Slave Coast. And around there, there's the Gold Coast, Ivory Coast, but then there's the Slave Coast, and from there, there were literally millions and millions of people taken from their homes, um, sold into slavery often by their own people or by enemy tribes. And when slavery was abolished in the West Indies, actually in Jamaica, the slaves were no longer slaves, but they had become Christians. And there were missionaries there that told them about Christ. And they said, you know, we have freedom from slavery, but we have freedom from so much more. We have never forgotten our homeland. We've never forgotten our families. Will you as the church send missionaries to our people? Unfortunately, the church at the time was very reluctant in doing so. But thanks to the work of God, that reluctancy turned into urgency. And before um, Mary Slessor was born, there were already a couple of decades of missionaries being sent into this region. So what is Mary Slessor's story? She was the second of seven children. She was raised in Scotland, um, born in Aberdeen, and then moved to the city of Dundee. But her father, um, much like the men that Colin talked about last week, was an alcoholic. And at first he was a shoemaker, eventually he started working in the, in the mills and the factories. But before he ever got home with his paycheck, with his wages, he would spend them at the pub. And even though he worked, his family was basically starving. Mary's mother, on the other hand, absolutely loved God, was a righteous and holy woman, and cared deeply about missions. She often took her children to church, but at night she would tell them stories about missionaries in Africa. One of the stories I read was um, Mary's older brother, Robert, and she were, were having kind of their bedtime story, and her mother was 
just telling them, there are people in Africa who have never heard of Jesus. They don't know God's love, and they never will unless someone goes to tell them. And little Robert piped up and he said, when I become a big man, I'm going to be a missionary in Africa. And little Mary said, me too, I want to preach. And her brother said, girls don't preach. What are you talking about? She instantly burst into tears. And Robert said, oh no, it's okay. You can go with me. You can go with me when I'm a missionary. Unfortunately, Robert died as a, as a child. And then Mary became the oldest in her family. And because of that, she also had to share the burden of what it meant to provide for a family that had so little. So when she was 11, she began working in the jute mills, making fabric in a factory. She would go to work during the day, and at night she would go to school. She had, from the very beginning, such an interest in missions. Later on, she continued to work, and her mother really thought, okay, my son John, Mary's younger brother, he will be the missionary in our family. But unfortunately, he got sick. They decided to send him to New Zealand so that he could recover from his sickness, but after only a week of being here, he also passed away. But Mary felt more and more like this thing was growing inside of her, this desire to be a missionary. When she was working at the factory and basically living on the edge of the slums, she saw just all of these people like her just living on the edge of, of starvation, living on the edge of poverty. And her church decided to start a mission in the slum where she lived. And so she volunteered as a youth worker. There were all these gangs of kids that would just run around and she would go on the streets as a street preacher and basically recruit them for her youth group. So she had a youth group full of slum kids that didn't know anything about Jesus. And she led them to Christ regularly and their lives were radically changed. She did this because she wanted to serve. And she felt like even if I'm not Af in Africa, I can start doing that right now. Maybe you've heard of David Livingston, or Dr. Livingston, and he was a missionary explorer in Africa at this time. And when Mary was 25, he died in Africa. When he died, she felt such a strong urgency that she had to go on the field. She talked to her mother. She had never shared her passion for missions before, and she shared with her mother, I want to go. I need to go. And she wrote a letter requesting to her, missions, to her church missions organization. After three years of preparing, she was eventually sent to Calabar, a large city in southern Nigeria, on the slave coast. It was also called the slum of Africa. She went from the slum to the slum, and it was also called the white man's grave. So when she was 28, she arrived in this is where it is in terms of the world. She arrived in Calabar, on the coast of southern Nigeria. And once there, she was working on the coast. She worked on a missions compound with other missionaries. She wasn't alone. She was teaching, helping to lead services. But she also struggled with disease and with malaria, which is very common. Part of the reason why it's called white man's graves, not just the threat of being killed, but the threat of dying from disease. And while she was there, she heard about the plight of twins. She heard about the plight of slaves and of women. 
What would happen in this culture is that when twins were born, it was believed that one child was fathered by a man and the other was fathered by an evil spirit. And because they couldn't tell the difference who had fathered which child, they would just kill both twins, chuck them in the bush, and their mother was also expelled from the village and not allowed back. Slaves and women were treated as objects. There was also cannibalism with the practice of eating their enemies and human sacrifices. When a chief died, all of his slaves and all of his wives were offered as human sacrifices to accompany, on, to accompany him on his journey into the next world. There was an endless cycle of war and revenge among the villages and witchcraft. Another thing that really angered Mary was their idea of justice. When someone was accused of a crime, they had to drink poison. If they were innocent, they would live. But if they were guilty, they would die. There were a lot of guilty. After Mary's first furlough, she asked for permission to go inland. She was tired of being on the coast. And more than that, she had such a desire to preach to people who had never heard. At the time, missionaries had been in Nigeria for about 30 years, but they had only lived at the coast. And in that coastal area, they had this missionary compound with European-style houses. They could import European-style foods. And they just felt like going inland was too dangerous for anyone. But she asked her missions organization, and they said yes. So at first, she just did little forays in. And during one of her first trips, she, she was brought a box containing a set of twins. One of the twins had died, but one of the twins was still alive. And she adopted her. Her name was Janie, named after one of Mary's little sisters, still in Scotland. She had such a desire to go where there was the most need, and she longed to preach the gospel to people who have never heard. She said, the worse the people are, the more they need help. Eventually, village chiefs heard of this, they called her the white ma or the white lady, and they would seek her out. They said, come and teach us about the book. Come, start a school, come, start a church. They had no belief in Christ, but they knew that there was a difference being made in the villages where she had visited. Overall, she ended up personally adopting six kids for, that just stayed with her, but she raised in total 51. This isn't even all the, all the kids. She also had women living with her that um, were cast out by their villages as well. She became known for settling disputes between tribes, preventing needless death in villages, she also convinced whole villages to be vaccinated by smallpox. When smallpox at the time, a whole village would just die. And she had, she had seen that firsthand where whole villages had been wiped out by that. Eventually, Slessor became the vice council of the area of Okongo. She was presiding over the native court as the first female magistrate in the entire British Empire. She became known at home as the white queen of Okoyong. 
She continued to pioneer over the years, always wanting to go further and deeper where no one had been before. And in 1913, she was honored by the King of Great Britain and received an honor called the Silver Cross of the Order of St. John of Jerusalem. And upon receiving this honor, she was very embarrassed. But when she received it, she said, I am Mary Slessor, nothing more than the unworthy, unprofitable, but most willing servant of the King of Kings. And eventually, after 39 years of service in Calabar, she died at age 67, surrounded by her children that she had rescued. In the beginning, I, I mentioned why I chose to speak about Mary. And the thing that came back to me as I looked at her life again was her surrender and her sacrifice. That's what most stood out to me. And I felt like, Good, my memory is not, not so dim, but also I've, I've felt re-challenged in some areas. Number one, Mary surrendered her personal life. In surrendering her personal life, she had to sacrifice relationships in Scotland. And in surrendering it, God gave her the community and the companions that she needed during her work. She loved her family deeply. And if you recall, she was the sole breadwinner. When she left Scotland, she had already tried to come to terms with, how is my family going to survive without me? And by then, it, just her mother and two of her sisters were remaining. When she got on the mission field, she just decided she would send almost all of her salary back home. So she lived on almost nothing. But she didn't make this kind of sacrifice just on her own. She had an example. And one time during, her, during a furlough in Scotland, she had a long conversation with her mother about how she wanted to go further in inland. She didn't want to be on the coast anymore. And it was going to be more dangerous. She didn't know if she was going to survive disease or wild animals or tribes. She could be murdered. But when she shared it, her mother said, Mary, you are my child, given to me by God, and I have given you back to him. When he needs you and where he sends you, there I would have you be. And this kind of spirit was the same thing that Mary took with her, that she was willing to sacrifice those that she loved. Mary had been living as a single missionary well over 10 years when her friends were surprised to find that she had become engaged. Mary had fallen in love with a young man from Scotland who was a teacher also in Africa as a missionary. But when they became engaged, she felt it was necessary to, to ask permission from the missions organization. She really, because their work really depended on where they were, she was way inland, and he was closer on the coast as a teacher. She decided to write a letter, and she submitted the relationship to them as unto God. And she said, whatever the board would decide would actually be God's will. Crazy enough, for unclear reasons, the engagement was denied. And when I read this first, when I was about 20 years old, 
I was absolutely shocked. I thought, this is so crazy. Why would that ever, ever happen? Like two missionaries in the middle of nowhere and the organization would say no. But she had decided that that was going to be God's will, whatever they had decided. And in talking about this thing of submitting her love life to God, she said, I lay it all in God's hands and I will take from him whatever he sees best for his work in Okoyong. My life was laid on his altar for that people long ago, and I would not take one jot or tittle of it back. If it be for his glory and the advantage of his cause, is of his cause there to let another join in it, I will be grateful. If not, I will still try to be grateful as he, the Lord, knows best. Mary sacrificed so much in terms of personal relationships, of letting go those that she loved most deeply. And in return, God continued to bless her and gave her community and gave her companionship. She developed some deep ongoing relationships with friends and supporters in Scotland, but also those on the field and friends from her work. And one in particular, her name was Ma Eme. She was the sister of a village chief, and she met her right away in her ministry. Eme would, in fact, send messages to Mary, warning her of possible issues in the villages. If there was an untimely death, which would cause stuff with witchcraft, possible fights between tribes and revenge. And God also provided those children for Mary. And Janie, that, the first twin that she adopted, continued to live and work with her. And when, when Mary passed on, Janie was 30 years old, and she was right there with her as her companion, as her daughter. This made me think of, in Luke 14, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he, yeah, no, this is not, sorry, that's a different passage. In Luke 14, Jesus is doing a teaching, and he says, One day when large groups of people were walking along with him, Jesus turned and, and told them, Anyone comes to me but refuses to let go of father, mother, spouse, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even one's own self. They can't be my disciple. Anyone who won't shoulder his own cross and follow behind me can't be my disciple. And then he goes on to talk about if you're going to build a house, you have to count the cost to see if you can even finish the house. And he talks about a king. The king has to think about if I go to war, is there a possibility I could win? And then in verse 33, it says, simply put, if you're not willing to take what is dearest to you, whether plans or people, and kiss it goodbye, you can't be my disciple. Number two, in Mary's surrendered life, she surrendered her vocational life. She was willing to wait and go as God opened doors. And she had a willingness to ask questions, hard questions, and to challenge what was normal in terms of Victorian missions. She had a bold proclamation of the gospel, and really her heart was all about the kingdom of God. She had several things that she did in her ministry that really mimicked 
um, some things that we see in the Old Testament, and then um, what Jesus said about himself in terms of the kingdom of God. In Isaiah 61, this is also the, when Jesus went to the synagogue, he said, this is what I am proclaiming, the kingdom of God. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes and the oil of joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his glory. And then later in verse 11, for as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. And this is what she was proclaiming. She proclaimed the glory of God so that it could spring up right where she was in the soil of Africa. There are some marks of the kingdom in how Mary served. She had holistic service. She served as Christ in multiple areas, in the justice, in medical, spiritual, educational. There was a hospital built in her honor. She built loads of schools and churches. She taught locals about trade using goods rather than slaves, because in the past they had just traded slaves to Europeans to be sent on these slave trips ships, but instead she said, well, why don't you trade goods instead of people? She also, for example, she brought in an expert basket maker to teach local women how to make baskets for themselves so they didn't have to be reliant on whatever the men in the village chose to do or not do. She was incarnational and she, and non-traditional. She broke the mold of the missions of that day. What she was doing was so radical. It, it sounds very normal now, but this is a hundred, over 100 years ago. So what she was doing, no one else was doing. She left the missionary compound. Everything that was European, she threw it out. She lived like the people that she ministered among. So she ate their food. She lived in their mud huts, just like they did. She learned their language and their culture. So she learned the trade language of the day that every village spoke so that she could just go wherever she wanted and, and talk and share the gospel in a way they could understand. And then she did super practical things, like she cut her hair really short because it was hot and hot. And she, she, she wore a European style dress, but you know how they would wear in the Victorian times all those petticoats underneath? So you couldn't stand close to anybody because she got rid of all the petticoats. She just, and went barefoot. So she was wild, like people were like, she's a wild woman. She had the spirit of adoption. She adopted twins and so many other children and people. She trained indigenous people to be church workers. When someone would become a convert, she would decide, okay, could they be someone that I can train up and then send into local villages? She had a team of people that she would send out. She built strong relationships with the chiefs. So she built a good rapport, she gave respect, and then she also earned respect and earned a right to speak. 
And this was huge in terms of her settling disputes, especially that was something she was doing early on, even before she was a magistrate. She helped to change the culture around the deaths of chiefs. So that whole thing of, of human sacrifice, she convinced them that they didn't need to do that anymore. And instead she taught them like, let's dress them up really nice and throw this great big party, but we don't have to kill anybody for, for the funeral. Um, she changed the culture around, they didn't kill twins anymore, and they changed the treatment of women and slaves. They had literacy, vocational training, all of that stuff. She was boldly evangelistic, and she chose the, to preach the power of God's love. And just as we saw in Isaiah 61, the gospel message is a marriage of both evangelism and social justice or activism. For Jesus, there was no division, and also for Mary. Third, she had a surrendered legacy. She had the courage to speak up in Scotland when she was on furlough, to speak up to government officials. That whole colonization thing that was happening, she had an opinion and she shared it, and sometimes that was not welcome. And she challenged the evil systems within a culture. Now, onto that passage where Jesus is in the garden. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a, small, a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Mary helped to change the face of the modern missionary movement through her passionate obedience. She surrendered her legacy as a missionary. And some of the things that I read for this section were written by the Nigerian church today. But even some of this stuff was recognized at the time of her death. And it's said of her that her major contribution to the spread of Christianity in South Niger southern Nigeria was to open up unexplored areas so that later on when evangelists would come, that the soil would be ready, that people would be ready to hear and ready to listen. This is what her colleagues believed that she aspired to do. And the Calabar Mission Council affirmed in a resolution adopted at the time of her death. They said, she regarded herself as a preparer of the soil that others may be able to sow and water and reap the master's harvest. As a missionary in those times, people were very challenged by her, but they also would have thought, uh, she's not that great a missionary. She doesn't really have so many converts. But what she did was prepare the ground for that. This is a picture of a statue of Mary holding a set of twins in Nigeria. Today, in many communities in Nigeria, the birth of twins is a celebration, and the mother is respected. Some of the churches, schools, and hospitals she started are still there, as well some of the traditions in the state government are around her ethics. 
In 2008, the Presbyterian Church of Nigeria started something called the Mary Slessor International Foundation for Humanity based on her principles. There's the Mary Slessor Hospital, Mary Slessor Technical School. In 2002, Scotland started, started the Mary Slessor Foundation, continuing Slessor's work in Africa by seeking to improve the lives of local women and training youth today. In uh, a paper that I read from the Nigerian church, said that Slessor remains an example of a bridge between the poor and the rich, the young and the old, the great and the small, the Western and the non-Western. And now they have something that they've started called a twinning program, where congregations in Scotland and congregations in Nigeria are partnered together. And in that, they're expected to enter into a relationship of mutual support and participation in mission. Both congregations are to be missions sending and missions receiving. This contemporary pattern of relationship may increase respect and deepen understanding between Nigeria and Scotland, which is radical in terms of post-colonization. So radical. Normally, there would the ill feelings between those who colonized would, would be there, and I'm sure it is in some extent, but to have churches working together, it's just, yeah, mind-boggling to me. So how can we respond to the story of Mary Slessor? Well, I didn't have to look very far because she actually has a message for people to respond to her. During her furloughs in Scotland, she would be asked by ministers to go around to all these different churches and to share what she's doing in missions. Tell us some, some great stories. Tell us, you know, when you were in danger and how God rescued you and all these people that are coming to Christ. And instead, she's a little bit of a rebel, she would give evangelistic messages. She would call people to Christ. And afterwards, the ministers would be so frustrated. I could have given that message. I could, have, I could have done just as good of a job. Why did you do that? And her response to them was, if the heart is right and the life consecrated, mission work would be well supported without any outside aid. Meaning people will respond if their lives are given over to God. And they don't need anybody to tell them they have to do it. They have God to work in their hearts to do that. So are you willing to live a surrendered life? Is your personal life surrendered to God? Mary had a lot of cards stacked against her. She came from a dysfunctional family with an alcoholic father, never knowing if there would be food on the table. She worked in the factory from age 11, didn't go to a normal school, didn't have high social standing, and she's a woman. But she didn't let that stop her from saying yes to God. And that did not stop God from calling Mary. I was really challenged in this because I wonder, do I allow the hard stuff in my life, the stuff I would rather forget about, to shape me and mold me for God's service? She surrendered herself she surrendered her family, and she even surrendered her romantic life. And at the time, in the beginning when I was single, I was like, yes, I'll surrender my romantic life. But now, as a married woman, is my marriage surrendered to God? Is he at the center? 
Number two, is your vocational life surrendered? Listen to God and get his perspective on your work. Instead of following tradition of how it looks to have a job or how it looks to serve in the kingdom, what is God saying about your vocation? For me, the hardest thing about my vocation is facing disappointment and having to wait. And I have felt like the waiting times is often the time that God is speaking to me the most. And the times that I'm most disappointed in my vocation, that's where I find I have to trust God for my value and my work. And number three, have you thought about the kind of legacy that you want to leave behind? An easy, carefree, comfortable life does not leave behind a legacy of substance. But I actually don't know anybody that has an easy, carefree life, but it's a goal in most people I meet that that's what they're aiming for. God is always asking us to be obedient to him. And when we are living an obedient, surrendered life, we can trust that we can leave behind a legacy of value. Even if, like Mary, you never really get to see the full fruits of your labor. This may all sound um, hard to surrender everything, but the truth is what makes it easy to surrender all of those different areas is that first we surrender to Jesus. And one thing that I I didn't talk about in Mary's story was actually how she decided to have a personal faith in Christ. And um, the story is, as she was a child, she was outside playing with some friends. And an old widow said, hey, Mary, come in here, and ushered her and all of her friends in her house. And she showed them this fire that was in the hearth. And she said, see that fire? If you would touch this fire, you would get burned but it would be nothing compared to the anguish and pain you would experience if you don't ask Jesus into your heart and you'll go to hell. And Mary was so gripped by this image, just so freaked out that for nights she couldn't sleep and days she couldn't stop thinking about it. And she just was just so freaked out that eventually she said, I just had to repent and believe. But she said... I thought this was so good. She said it was hellfire that drove her into the kingdom. But once there, she found it to be a kingdom of love, tenderness, and mercy. It was a kingdom of love, tenderness, and mercy. And never throughout her ministry, in the slums of Scotland or in the slums of Africa, did she want anyone to come into the kingdom as she had by shock and by fear? Surrendering to Jesus means surrendering to love. That it doesn't have to be a fearful thing. Or to surrender parts of your life that haven't been surrendered. You don't have to do it out of fear because you will find love in the surrender. 
you will find peace and you will find hope. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for Mary Slusser's life. That for you, you were the king of kings for her and you are the king of kings for us. That we can live a surrendered life in every aspect, our personal lives, our vocational lives, our legacy, that we don't have to worry about it once we surrender it to you. So God, thank you for this hero of mine. And I pray that she would be an example for us. Challenge us. And I thank you for the church in Nigeria. I thank you that after a hundred years of her, of her life, that things are going well and growing. Continue your work around the world. In Jesus' name, amen.